This program is not intended to diagnose, cure, or treat any disease or disorder. The listener is encouraged to seek sound medical advice from their doctor or other qualified healthcare practitioner before taking any supplements or starting a new health regimen. And welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast as we wind our way through February and, uh, you know, Valentine's and, and all that stuff and all the romance and, and, and the chocolates and the, you know, all that crazy sweet stuff that's uh, probably flying around that, uh, you know, you're, you're making rationalizations for. I mean, I, let's face it, that's why we have holidays, right? <laughs> so we can eat stuff, you know? That's why we do that. Adrian Hugh, how are you today? I'm fine, Jim. Thanks for asking. Oh, well, you know, I'm happy. It's sunny and it's warm here and it's weird because it's sunny and warm here in Canada. And, uh, you know... It's always sunny and warm here. (laughs) Yeah, you know. And, you know, what I like about you, Adrian, is that living in Hawaii, you never rub that in. No, never. No, you never rub that in. You never. But I, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I'm going to, down to the beach later, so I just have really? to throw that in. Well, let me put it to you this way. I'd rather shovel snow than lava. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't know if you can shovel lava, but hey. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> you could try. So it'll, look. It'll, it'll, it'll melt your, uh, your shovel, but. There you go. So look, um, Apparently, some new government guidelines have come out, and uh, not surprisingly, you have some... I can't stand them. I think the government's crazy. Is it that bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, you know, the, 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 the problem is, is that each set of guidelines seems to get us further away from real food. And they, on the one hand, they kind of make it sound good. And there's certain things I can, definitely can support, but they just they they the the implementation of it brings us more towards synthetic things that are just not found in nature. And this I know I've talked about this before. This plays upon the concept that our bodies are healthy and that we're here quite by accident because obviously our ancestors didn't know what the heck they were doing. So the, the government guidelines talk about trans fats. And yes, we do want to keep the synthetic trans fats that are made in the margarine factories uh, out of our diet. But then they tell us stuff like, okay, so where is the trans fat? Okay, it's in creamer, cookies, crackers, cakes, frozen pies, other fast food, frozen pizza, ready-to-use frostings, yada, yada, yada. They go through this whole list. And then they're like, well... Stay off the stick bar- margarine, but the soft margarine in a tub, liquid, or spray is okay. And only choose lean cuts of meat and skinless poultry, which has, doesn't have fat, trans fats. There is a little bit of trans fat in butter, but it's, uh, it's a trans fat that actually benefits us. It's not like the uh, synthetically made ones. But, you know, we got to stay off of butter because it's fat. Anyway, and then they get into the, the milks, and they're saying a substitute fat-free or skim, low-fat milk products or uh, yogurt and cheese for, uh, oh, so, or, so, or fortified soy beverages for whole-fat milk and milk products. And that just really, that's just wrong on so many levels. And, and on, the, on the blog, I believe there's an article that I wrote several years ago that shows that the kids who drink full-fat milk are slimmer than the kids who drink the skim, low-fat 
nonsense. And certainly the ones who drink the soy beverages, because we talked about soy a few weeks ago with Kayla Daniel, and she talks about how it uh, jacks up your hormones and often leads to weight gain because it suppresses thyroid function. You know what I call skim milk, eh? I, I, call, oh. it, I call it Smurf milk. <laughs> exactly. Because, because it's, it's blue. It's blue. And I just, I don't know. I have never met a blue cow. Uh, and it just kind of bothers me. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But but what happened is when they when they studied uh, school children and they put the, you know, the, the different groups on the different varying levels of fat, the ones who drank the low fat and skim milk, they were more likely to consume a lot more. Now you have to remember, once you take the fat out, what's left is essentially just sugar. Really? And yes. So even, I mean, even if you've got cats, uh, cats, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to go herd the cats, Martha. I'm cats herding, limits down here. <laughs> I'm, I'm a cat herder. That's what I do. Um, you know, the, the cows, if the cows are just eating grass, let's say they're not doing the hormones thing and everything else, right? Right. Then can you tell me where they get the sugar to put in the milk? If it didn't have parents, it's sugar. If it didn't have parents, it's sugar? Yeah, uh, meaning that uh, plants br- all break down to carbohydrate on some level. So when you take there's, – there's three macronutrients. There's sugar, fat – sorry, yeah, uh, sh- or I should say carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Yes, there is some protein in, in skim milk, but it is so heavily damaged from the ultra-pasteurization uh, process – that it is very foreign to a lot of people's bodies. So this is why many people ha- think they have milk allergies is because they're consuming what I call Franken proteins, which are these heavily damaged proteins from ultra pasteurization. And, uh, and really the, in the absence of the fat to assimilate and, and use that protein properly, you're really en- ending up with a, a sugar balance. Well, I mean, somewhere and right now, top, Louis- on top of it, people are because it's not satisfying because there is no fat in there. It's not doesn't mm. stick to your ribs, so to speak. People right. will consume two and three times as much. Well, you know, that's true. My my parents were, you know, that was when this whole skim milk thing really caught on. And my parents were really big on that, on the skim milk. And uh, it's certainly true. You, you do drink a lot more. And now I always made the connection that it's more refreshing. It's kind of like light beer. No. So you drink more of it, which kind you of drink defeats more of the it purpose. because you're because your your body is starving. It's saying, "Give I need nutrients. Give me nutrients." And the only thing you're letting me drink is this blue swill. So just give me two or three times that, and to the point that my belly wants to burst, and then I'll feel full. Well, okay. That that or you that, could just or you could just have that that you know four percent fat that naturally would be on top. Well, that explains the kid in grade school that used to be able to shoot milk through his nose, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. not making that up. And there was this, that, he could go 20 you. feet. I'm assuming that wasn't you? No, that wasn't me. I never developed any really good sort of, you know, those weird kid skills that they, you know, that some kids have that they freak people out with. Uh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I find that hard to believe, but, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so this is, this, this actually, this, this whole thing on the government guidelines, it, it brings up what's been a very sore spot for me living in Hawaii, where we do have uh, some, some really high obesity rates, uh, which most people don't think of. They think of kind of the Baywatch version of, uh, of Hawaii, um, you know, where people are just running in 
skinny, skimpy little bikinis, although some of them do still wear the skimpy bikinis. But we do have an issue with obesity and uh, children's health. Mm. So uh, last year, and they're, they're actually gearing up to do it again, we went to uh, this festival in town where it was like the healthy cakey, cakey is, is Hawaiian for children or child, the healthy cakey festival. So we go there and there's a, a table of nurses from varying hospitals around the island and they keep trying to shove some cake on my kid. And my and I'm like, no, that's okay. And they're like, but there's three servings of vegetables in it. And I'm like, that's okay. My kid eats vegetables. So they're like, yeah, but it's cake with vegetables. And I keep trying to shove this cake on my kid. So they right next to them, there is, and I'll, I'll have to give you a picture so we can put it up on the, on the blog. There's a picture of, a, a, I have a picture of the uh, box cake mix, you know, Duncan Hines or whatever. And then a can of pumpkin, a half of zucchini, and I forget what the third item was. It was some, you know, basically some piddly amount of <laughs> corn or whatever the heck they put in there. But basically, this is what they're calling healthy now, as if the, the presence of the pumpkin and the zucchini and the other vegetable are miraculously going to counteract all the chemicals, dyes, and sugar in the cake mix. So carrot but, muffins bad then? <laughs> it's like <laughs> don't have to come over there and slap you. <laughs> no, I, I, listen, <laughs> I, I mean you're killing all my rationalizations here. It's because I do the same thing. Hey, there's carrots in it. it yeah, it's, it's yeah. That might have bad. been actually the other the other vegetable. It may have been some grated carrot in there. But it was I I was beside myself. So to make matters worse, the the s- sweet woman who is doing this couldn't be less than 350 pounds and it's telling me one of two things either the diet that you are prescribing is completely ineffective or the diet you are prescribing for people is so so horrible that you don't even want to do it and that's where these guidelines take a lot of people because they take all of the gratification, all of the taste, all of the, the good stuff that people traditionally came to the table for mm. out of the equation. And all you're left with is a bad choice or another bad choice. Yeah. You see where I'm going with this? No, I see where you're going with this because it's uh, and I and I agree. I think that there's, you know, uh, cooking used to be a ritual. Uh, eating used to be a ritual. Um, you know, and it, and it was very much the the centerpiece of the family unit of family unity, and and that's that's gone away. That's changed. Right, right, yeah, exactly. And so, th- th- so to compound matters, my kids uh, about once a quarter are sent home from school with these bags of. Uh, I'm looking at this bag now. It's sponsored by Hawaiian Telecom, and, and <laughs> by the way, um, the gardener who usually isn't is only here on Tuesdays just showed up. So uh, we're going to have to take care of that in a minute. <laughs> they, they, um, so anyway, they're sent home with this bag of food. You know, I guess it's to help families that need help making ends meet, which a lot of us do. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful gesture. However, uh, let's see, they got a can of pork and beans and tomato sauce Turn the can. Okay, white beans, tomato puree, water, 
uh, sugar, uh, less than 2% of high fructose corn syrup, salt, distilled vinegar, pork, baking soda, onion powder, artificial flavors, calcium chloride, and I think that's it. Oh, spice. Mm, Calcium chloride. Mm. Mm. Yum, yum, yum. And then they've got a can of Vienna sausage, (laughs) mechanically separated chicken, chicken broth, water, beef, pork. It sounds good so far. Less than 2% salt, sugar, spices, sodium erythrobate, flavoring, sodium nitrite, and garlic powder. Do you want to try for the peanut butter? No. Sugar, peanuts, sugar, hydrogenated vegetable oils, salt, molasses. So they can't even, you know, so basically we're we're getting these messages to eat fruits and vegetables. And then this is the stuff that that we're loading up our kids on. And, uh, oh, but they did give us 1% low-fat milk, which, of course, has added chemically processed uh, vitamins to it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's like my father said to me once, he said, you know, he said, we, we didn't get a manual with you guys, we're just making this up as we go along, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a heck of a lot of confusion going on where, you know, I'd hate to see, you know, new parents must just go right out of their minds trying to decide, make all these decisions, and, and right. um, you know, I know that we work hard with our daughter, who's six, to, you know, make sure that she gets you know, I, um, a balance, but at the same time, when convenience creeps in, you, it's not hard to decide, okay, pizza. Um, right. And that's the thing is that pizza doesn't have to be bad. Yeah. You can, you know, there's nothing, I have nothing wrong with a taco, pizza, hamburgers. I, I, I would feed my kids hot dogs as long as I could get a good one. You yeah. know, like this, there's, there's really, there's this concept in America that, there are certain foods that are actually real foods that our parents ate. You know, like Richie Cunningham used to go to the, the you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, Al's. Al's. Or <laughs> right? And uh, Arnold's and, and hang out and, you know, have a burger and a shake. Like, that's not a bad thing to eat. But the problem is, we first of all, we eat it all the time. Somehow we, we need that so-called reward all the time. But uh, we also are not consuming these in their better forms. You know, we're, you know, if, hand me a bacon double cheeseburger. I'll eat it. <laughs> Just I want to know where my bacon and my cheese and my burger came from. That's all. So essentially every, you know, every house and school should come with a garden then is what you're saying. That yes. Would, it would make yes. a be- world a better place. That, that, that's exactly why today I invited Alethea Live from Malaai Garden at the Waimea Middle School to join us. Alethea. Hi. Hey, girl. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, this is uh, this is such a heartening project for me uh, to hear about. When I first moved here, and I learned about the garden, I said I got to talk to this woman because there. This is just such a, a beautiful program, and I think what I like about it the most is that Waimea Middle School is not. It's just the regular public school. It's not the crunchy, uh, hippie. Charter school, Waldorfian, <laughs> whatever. It's just <laughs> a old school. Yet you've got this beautiful organic garden. And when I discovered that the kids, and I don't know if they're doing it again this year, but last year when I discovered that the kids sold their vegetables on Wednesdays 
and they were awesome vegetables and it was encouraging them and they were excited to be there. I was ecstatic to support them. And I, I posted it all over Facebook and told everybody I knew because people didn't know that they were there. So, yeah. so thank you <laughs> for, for heading up this, this project. How did you get started with the garden? Um, well, I'll talk about how the garden itself got started. Uh, there was a naturopath in town, uh, named Michelle Suber, who was, uh, starting to see an increase in the amount of children she was treating in her practice that really had, um, preventable diseases and, and, uh, and issues coming through her office. And so after a few years of this, she decided that, um, there was something, something bigger going on in the community to lead these, you know, basically kids already having, you know, nutrition related health problems. So she started, uh, looking at some of the solutions that actually, uh, spoke to the cause and she stumbled across the edible schoolyard, uh, in Berkeley, which is, um, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but for those who aren't, it's, um, it's a school, one of the first school garden programs really, uh, in the U S it was a cha- attached to, um, Alice Waters restaurant, uh, Chez Penny's in, um, in the Bay area. And, um, and so she went over there to study it for two weeks and see what they were doing and if it could be replicated in our little town. Um, and while she was there, she met one of the staff that was working there, Amanda Ryu. Um, and so she came home and decided that this was indeed, you know, what she was looking for. And so uh, she started madly uh, contacting the public school, which is uh, Waimea Middle School. It's a public charter conversion school, actually. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, uh, one of the few in the state actually has that weird in between status of being mm. a public school, but a charter school, which oh, is okay. good and bad for sure. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, she did actually get support of the administration and she wrote some grants and she actually convinced Amanda to move over here, uh, and start the program for her. And, um, and so we've been on the ground, actually, uh, this will be our 11th year at the school, uh, which is incredible. I've been with the organization, I've been going on my sixth year. Uh, and at this point, you know, we really started in a barren field of kikuya grass, which is just a really sort of a harsh savanna, African savanna grassland that was brought over for cattle. Um, not very good for gardening. <laughs> and uh, and in the beginning, it was, um, it was voluntary, so it was whatever... T- teachers wanted to come out. And to be honest, there was only a few teachers in the beginning who were interested because uh, we were literally having kids come out into an empty barren field. So you had to have some imagination at that point um, <laughs> to see what it could be. And um, and if you fast forward now, we're, we're, about, we're about an acre, um, still an organic garden. Uh, we now see all all the students at the school, which is about 270 students, and we see every student approximately every two to three weeks, depending on their class schedule. So we see all um, health, PE, and science classes. Um, we're really, we're really, uh, we've evolved obviously since the beginning, but our our emphasis has always been on um, growing healthy children first and foremost, and really teaching kids the connection between um, themselves and the food they eat and the and the land, and giving them a sense of place, you know, in the process. Um, and and now, of course, because of pressures of you know new standards of education and no child left behind, and and sort of the changing academic environment in this in this country. Um, we certainly have found the garden to be an excellent place uh, to really teach about all kinds of subjects. Uh, 
food and nutrition, you know, being health and wellness being the core, but it's a great place to also learn about math and science and social studies and all of these other wonderful subjects that you really, um, you have a deeper understanding of, at least we believe when you can actually be outside and learning in sort of a hands-on place-based fashion that unfortunately most of our classrooms these days just don't offer. Um, so we do a lot of work with curriculum development as well and really trying to back up, you know, what's happening in the classroom. Right. Um, and it's funny you say that because my, my older daughter in particular, uh, she actually both of my girls are really good at math. And, and a lot of what they learned and, and even their reading came along with me in the kitchen. Uh, yes. and, and a lot of times we, we look down on these types of tasks, the gardening, the, the cooking, uh, because they're not practical. And it's like, well, yes, they're, first of all, yes, they're practical because they feed you. But yes, they also teach. My kids know fractions. My, my five-year-old can count to 100 by tens, and, and she can, <laughs> and uh, she can divide with, in her head. <laughs> I bet they're amazing with pie charts as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have eight slices of pizza, <laughs> yeah, sixteen people in one pie. How? What? What? What fractions do you need to cut the pizza up into? Um, yeah, that's right. And and I think that's really the powerful uh, sort of transformative. Um, aspect of school gardens, which is that they do really do have the ability to sort of hit on so many important issues that are facing our children, um, you know, in 2016. And so to me, that's, that's why I like it. I think in our modern age, you know, if you're looking at uh, sort of creating lasting change, you have to find a solution that hits multiple levels at the same time. I think just hitting one level isn't good enough anymore, unfortunately, with the fast paced movement of modern society. So that's what keeps me exciting about excited about school gardens in particular. Um, we can impact so many different levels of, you know, children's development, um, right. all with with hands-on activities right. and really being out there and having your hands in the dirt, which is just such a fundamental act um, that I think we've really I think we've really gotten away from it, and it's and it's a shame. Um, what we found overwhelmingly in the garden is that when kids grow their food, they'll eat the food. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's a there's a certain pride that comes in learning where it comes from and learning how to take care of and nurture plants and then being able to harvest, you know, the fruits of your effort. Uh, most of our kids will, will go ahead and, and eat it after they've grown it. Yes. Yes. It's so, it's so very true. And the same, same goes for cooking. A lot of kids who do, will not eat this, will not eat that. You bring them in the kitchen and you show them how to do it. And suddenly they take pride in this and it, everybody's got to eat this. I made it. Right. So it's, you know, it's a no-brainer. Uh, so how, how much resistance, if any, do you, you weren't there at the, at the very beginning, but uh, from what you know, how much resistance was there within school administration to get something like this going? Because I, I, I think you know, a lot of people hearing this may say, well, you know, our school would never go for it. What, what and I, 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 think there is, I think there is some truth to that. You know, we certainly spent a lot of years really proving that we were worthwhile and that we weren't wasting anyone's time. Um, and I think uh, I think that's a different battle that happens. I think some schools really embrace school gardens very quickly, and others, uh, you know, it takes it takes still more effort yet. And even even to this day, I would say our school has uh, fairly dismal dismal academic statistics coming out of it. And so we certainly have quite a bit of pressure to prove that we're you know we're making a positive impact on academic achievement. And um, and so I think knowing what you're facing and what sort of uh, concerns that you would have going into the program helps. At this point, 
the school guard uh, the school guard programming and sort of the movement is very well developed, much more so than 11 years ago when we started. Um, and so there are very wonderful, powerful resources out there that absolutely prove their value. And so you don't have to reinvent the wheel if you're starting out. You know, you can tap into that vast amount of, of research and make a good case that eventually, you know, you're you're going to have that same impact if you if you're doing quality work. Right. And, and I would also think that uh, people could come up with different ways they can um, implement uh, what you know, the sciences and math and so on uh, to um, make sure that they really understand. I'm trying to think of how, how the best way to say this now, um, but to, 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 to really show very concrete ways, whether it's building a birdhouse or measuring out certain, uh, uh, let's say, sprays or, or you know, uh, 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 soil amendments. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, to say, like, this is, these are some of the things that we're doing that we can do in the garden uh, that will further the studies that they have in the classroom and give them that tactile, hands-on relationship because you, you, that's right you, you learn algebra in a classroom or geometry it doesn't really make a lot of sense just <laughs> I think I, you know and I think that's the interesting part I think it does make sense for a certain portion of students and then I think yes. they're I think there's kinesthetic learners and I Absolutely. think they just learn entirely differently and and also a lot of the kids that um I don't really like ADHD terminology per mm -hmm. se but I think there's a lot of kids that need a lot more movement and activity in their life and so um you know being outside and being active is, is a much more effective way for them to learn. We don't actually know which kids are are the so-called naughty ones or not out in the garden. Um, and often the kids that we find to be the leaders and that are the rock stars are the ones that um, traditionally are the problems in the traditional classroom setting. Yes. Um, and, and, and we just, we have no idea when they're out in the garden, those kids are the ones that are just so enthusiastic and are really taking leadership roles out there. That's fantastic. Um, there's so many, there's so much good curriculum now that's been developed around school gardens. I think that, um, I think that the, the best advice I would give to someone looking at starting a school garden is to really invest in a great teacher. Yeah. I think, I think in, in this case, human capital is everything. And so finding someone that has a fairly unique set of skills, because you do need to be sort of a horticultural horticulturist and a teacher, which is, you know, um, not everybody has those. Uh, but I think having both those skills and being dedicated um, and meeting, really integrating with the school, we spend, um, our garden teacher spends a lot of time attending school meetings, especially with the science team. We work most closely with science. Health and PE, we're a natural fit. So almost anything we do, we're hitting, we're hitting this the standards there. Awesome. Um, but with science, you know, we spend a lot of time, uh, we try to use the same language they're using in the classes. We try to develop sort of hands-on experimental lessons that will reinforce what they're learning in the classroom. So when the kids come out, they actually have the opportunity to, you know, practice what they're learning. And so it comes alive for them rather than just being, you know, a lesson in a textbook, which right. doesn't really capture everyone's imagination. Right, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, what's funny is that this is, this is, when I was in junior high in grades seven and eight, uh, we actually had a community garden that was at one school and all the schools in the area spent some time going over there and and what really sort of what i saw at least for myself what it did was it it taught me that i could make stuff mm. yeah 
you know, it taught me that like, I, Hey, look, I can take this. It's almost like the same reason people buy kids a puppy. You know what I mean? It's (laughs) (laughs) no, but it's that engagement, right? Yeah. 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 It it, it was really, you know, you, you, I was like, you know, the instructor, this teacher was saying, telling me how to plant the stuff and everything. And, and until those green leaves started popping out of there, I was, you know, I wasn't believing them at all. Right. <laughs> this, this ain't gonna happen. And and then when I saw those leaves bursting through because I created it, I suddenly became very invested in 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 the process and taking care of 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 those things that I had planted and had actually grown. Yeah. 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 And I think I think too there's such a powerful uh there is such a powerful connection with eating healthy food that I think is sort of on a visceral level that people respond to. I think I think when you eat something that's good for you, I don't think you have to actually know the nutrition guidelines. I don't think you have to um have read up on latest government standards. I think you actually if you if you once you develop the skills and we try to really teach our kids this, you know, look at the impact. You know, go 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 eat at McDonald's and then see how you feel two hours later or even immediately, you know. Versus go eat a salad that you grew yourself and see how your body feels after and sort of, you know, check in with yourself because the knowledge is right there and, and, and you can sort of, you can quickly get a feel if that was something that was really serving you or not. And I, I do think that food still retains that power and, um, I think it's a great way to bring community together. And I think that it, it, you know, our kids feel better when they've eaten the food. And I think that that's caught on and sort of steamrolled over time you know now we have the kids that really wish the cafeteria food was improved and they could eat like they did out in the garden in the cafeteria and to me you know that's that's a success for what the work we're doing they they recognize that they want better food in their cafeteria yeah so, yeah i don't know how long it'll take us to get there but right well but you the guys fact that the kids something... are now demanding it right rather right. than us demanding better food it's coming out of the kids voices and that's that's where it needs to be coming from exactly um, that, and that dovetails into what my next question was, is the super kitchen. <laughs> I love the freaking super kitchen, okay? <laughs> and it's gone now. <laughs> but, you know, I will pay for the super kitchen, let me tell you. <laughs> Can you explain to everybody what, what the Mela Eye Garden super kitchen was? Sure. Um, that was basically a, a free community meal. And it really uh, we came out of some strategic planning we did. And we were really... We were trying to decide what we were doing as an organization, and we kind of uh, we chose a growth model, and uh, we interviewed a lot of people, and they all said the work we're doing with the kids is very applicable to adults as well, and and we needed to have you know more community programming, and and we're we're always looking at ways we can sort of um, impact you know low income families especially who seem to have uh, greater barriers statistically to you know healthier foods, and so what we really wanted to do with the super kitchen was proved that you could eat healthy and affordably. So we were trying to make recipes um, that featured whole foods and that were less than $3 per person to recreate at home. So very, very cost affordable. Um, And then the other component um, was to really have a chance for the community to come together and sit down at community tables and eat all together. Uh, We have a very wide economic divide in this town. So it was also bringing in the haves and the have nots to sort of you know, sit down and share a meal together and have conversations and see see who all is in, who makes up our community because there's a lot of people, at least the hope was that you maybe 
maybe have no other reason to come across in your daily life that suddenly you could get to know and sort of broaden your perspective of some of the issues that face our town. And, uh, and then lastly, we really, uh, we are trying to find ways to have our kids realize that they're community contributors. Um, we have five private schools in this town and we're the only public school and our private school children have all the opportunities in the world. And I think they really do feel like they're an integral part of the community. Um, they spend a lot of time developing leadership, school, leadership skills at those schools. And so for us, it's really important for our kids to understand that they also um, are the future of this town and that they, you know, they, they're important and there's all these ways they can already contribute and give back to their community. So it was really run primarily by the students. Um, they helped prep the food and cooked it, uh, the day before in their classes. And of course got to, got to eat the recipes themselves during class time. And, um, and they got, we gave the recipes away to all of our school families. Um, and then they came the next day and actually helped run the whole event. And it was, it is a fabulous event. Um, unfortunately for us, we were feeding, anywhere between three and 400 people over two days. And, um, we only have a staff of two and a half. And so it was just literally killing us to pull off the event. Right. And so at some point as a small organization, you always have to take these pauses and say, is this really our mission? Is this really what we're supposed to be doing with such a small staff? And uh, the answer was pretty clear that it was, you know, pushing us all to the limit. And, and, and our primary focus, although we are we are looking at how we're going to have community programming. Our primary focus has and always will be the students at this school. And right. so um, it was just too much of a time sink, unfortunately, for us to do. I would love to see some other groups in the town take it over. I think it would be a perfect project for Blue Zones. Um, but, you know, that's just my humble opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that you can find a partner to, you know, to, to come online, some community group, because that is just so brilliant. It's just brilliant. And, and you guys, you, you, you brought in some, like some of the bigger chefs from the area, right? From the, from the, the you know, top restaurants and so we, on. We, in the beginning, we thought that we could do it with volunteer chefs. Um, and that worked the first couple. But then we realized also just, um, and I'm sure you have worked with chefs. They're sort of all over the map with their skill levels and their, yeah. certainly their egos. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, to be frank. And so it was very difficult to work with crazy crazy different styles and skills every single time yeah. and also it was a lot to ask of someone to volunteer and we really try to watch as a nonprofit, you know not ask not over tapping any volunteers uh too much because everybody needs to make a living and you know we're really supporting sustainability on so many multiple levels and and one of them is you know paying people for their work. So we did end up hiring one chef and working with him um, for the last five or six. And that certainly made the process a little bit smoother. Um, you know, the hard part, and this is always a challenge, is that we started towards the, the last half of the program, we started to see more and more low-income people but I would say probably still the majority, 60 or 70 percent was was middle class right. Waimea. Right. And, you know, and I, you and I, don't... Kept saying, I kept saying uh, the first because I found out about it really just I think it was this, uh, August or so I found out about it. And I said, why are we not paying, you know, five bucks for this or something? <laughs> right, know? right, right. And, it, and so the whole idea was that, you know, it was free so that, um you know, encouraging low income people to come and just have a free meal and sort of have that idea that the power of good food would, would win them over. And once they've tasted something, you know, they, we, we gave out the recipe so they could go back 
we made sure all the food was sourced at KTA and in stores they're familiar with because we do, you know, you do realize you're not, these people don't shop at the health food stores and, yes. and maybe they're going to farmer's markets. We're seeing that more and more, but maybe they aren't. And so we really tried to get the food at Costco or the local grocery stores. Um, and so, uh, but we were still basically serving middle class and, uh, and Waimea, and that's been an ongoing problem. We've, we've actually had a variety of programs we've done throughout the years trying to target low-income populations and for whatever reason, they're very successful and we're mostly serving middle class, which hmm. uh, I'm not sure that's the best fit for grant money and for our time and efforts. You know, those, yes, that, sure. that's, that's the socioeconomic group that has has a lot more access to opportunities Absolutely. and resources. Yeah, and so, I told everybody you know, about it when I went there. I told everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, that's always the ongoing issue is, you know, how do we how do we really target the families that we want? And and really, um, our school, we have 71% at this point, Title I students. So that's on free and reduced lunch. So those kids are either at or below the poverty line. Um, and so we're finding, we're trying to find ways where we can actually, you know, deepen our relationship with our students' families because they do represent the low income, you know, population in this town. Um, and, and there, and, and there's challenges when you work with that community because right. most of them are working three or four jobs. The kids are often latchkey. A lot of our students are actually in charge of their younger brothers and sisters at the elementary mm-hmm. school already by middle school. Right. And so, um, and they have transportation issues. And so how do you, how do you get very busy overstretched, uh, you know, families to be able to participate in events? Mm-hmm. It's a, sure. it's a tricky one, you know, yeah. and we, we haven't, and we certainly haven't found that magic um, solution yet, but we are not a profit. So gosh, darn it. We're just going to keep trying. <laughs> That's all we can ask you to do. Uh, we're going to have to wrap this up because uh, we're, we're coming up uh, on time now. But uh, I wanted to just touch on one thing. This is, uh, this is like a part-time gig for you. Is that correct? It's well, it's my, full, it's, it's my full-time job. Yes, I do, I do it full-time. But then on the side, because, you know, I could talk for another whole podcast on the state of nonprofits in this country. But, um, yeah, it's very hard to actually, uh, you know, make a living and um, think about retiring or... <laughs> Right. <laughs> Even going on a vacation. So yeah, it's definitely I'm definitely a labor of love, right? It's a labor of love, absolutely. Which I, I actually disagree that that's the state of our nonprofit field in general, but unfortunately that is what it is at this point. So yes, I do real estate on the side so that I can hopefully one day retire like the rest of the world and uh <laughs> go okay. on vacation every once in a while. Okay, so uh, by real estate is that for people relocating to Hawaii or you know, it's for yeah. Anyone that wants to, you know, buy and sell on a, on on the Big Island of Hawaii, I'm certainly uh, I'm certainly your person. Oh. I also just love real estate. It's my it was my side passion. Anyways, I'm a bit of a I love I love houses and looking at properties. So I thought Hi. if I'm going to do a second job, I better pick something that I actually enjoy. <laughs> So, and 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 you said you only have two and a half people. So you're one of the two people, or two and a half. I'm one of the yes. I'm. We have two full time employees. One of which is me, and then um, we have a part time employee, okay. and then we have a full time food corps member, and then we we really have about twenty five regular volunteers. Okay. Um, that come out every week, and they make our program possible for okay. sure. Yeah, just want to give people an idea of you know how many people does it take to run a village? <laughs> it takes a community to grow a garden, as we right. like to say. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alethea, for joining us today because this is just fabulous information. I think I think Jim uh, might even be a little surprised at how much he enjoyed talking about gardening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, listen, I, I mean, in our area where we are, there's some there's this weird um, 
you know, we have some wildlife, coyotes and rabbits. And it was pretty funny because what happened was there were a couple of incidences with, you know, with domestic pets and the coyotes. So people in the area started screaming about these coyotes and won't somebody please think of the children. Um, you know, so they didn't, obviously we, we wouldn't, there was no culling or anything of the coyotes, but there, I believe there was some trapping and some stuff that went on to try and move them out. And now we're overrun with rabbits. There you go. And apparently somebody went to one of the city council meetings and and was complaining about the rabbits. And one of the counselors looked up and said, well, you know, you told us to get rid of the coyotes. Yeah. What did you expect? Exactly. So growing a garden here now is is a bit of a challenge because you literally have to put netting up and fencing. And and you're still going to get half your stuff eaten by, by rabbits. Right, yeah. right. Well, right, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere has has those challenges. But what still yet? What a great lesson to learn because you actually get to learn about your your, you know your 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 wildlife and the food chain and your your impact on it as a human being, which you know are all very valuable lessons. Even if it's not the the half of your salad's gone at the end of the day, you know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, it's. Uh... I mean, I think, uh, you know, when you give those kids, I, I love what you're doing. And when you give those kids a chance to, to show their power that they can create, that they can nurture it, it, there's, there's nothing but good that comes out of that. I can't think of a negative thing that would come out of that. Um, now I think this should be fun. Let's let the Canadian try and pronounce this. It's your website for the garden is malai.org. <laughs> yes, which autocorrect, uh, was so, so kind to change it to malaria. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mala ai, which actually means um, it means food garden in Hawaiian. So hmm. that's that's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Alethea. Yeah, we'll it, have it, links to mala ai and to mm-hmm. and we'll let's put up a link for for uh, real estate as well. If anybody yeah. wants to move to the island, they can always get in in touch with Alethea. Let's let's That'd get be that great. link. And if you're looking for a home with a garden in Hawaii, you couldn't talk to yeah, a I know, exactly. <laughs> That's right. If you if you want to be if you want to be sustainable, I'm your I'm your person. <laughs> and, and remember, you can subscribe to our podcast, Nutrition Heretic Podcast, on both Stitcher and uh, iTunes. And please, on both of them, leave us a rating. It's really important, and we appreciate when you rate us and let other people know how you feel about the show. And of course, share it with all your friends. If you would like to be a guest on the show, or if you have comments or questions or a suggestion for a guest you would like to have on the show, please drop by our website nutritionheretic.com or drop by and say hello to us on facebook.com at facebook.com nutrition heretic adrian as always super pleasure alethea thank you uh what a fascinating discussion there's we got to do more of this stuff i know <laughs> i'm telling you i got the hookup down here that's right there's lots and lots of this this island especially has such a great movement around food and land and justice that it's it's a great place to be Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jim.